Welcome back to To The Point. I'm Benjamin Gadan, Deputy Director of the Wilson Center's Latin American Program. In this episode of our new series, A Path Out of Crisis, Conversations with Leading Latin American Economists, our global fellow, Lucio Castro, speaks with Tulane economist Nora Lustig about the role of social policy in Latin America's post-pandemic economic recovery. Welcome back to Pulse Out of Crisis. This is the second episode of our series of conversations with leading economies in Latin America. And today we have the pleasure of talking with Nora Lustig. Nora is a professor of Latin American economics at Tulane University. And she's also the director of the Center for um, the Commitment to Equity Institute at, at the university. And she's one of the most well-known experts in Latin America about inequality and poverty. And, and the idea of having Nora here is to talk about uh, the social impacts of the pandemic in the region, but also to try to think about some ways out of this crisis, particularly what's the role of uh, social policy in trying to get the, the region on its feet out of this massive macroeconomic shock and social shock that the region has uh, suffered. So which, without further ado, let me, Nora, start by asking you just a first question. Uh, you have recently published a paper with Mariano Tomasi and other co-authors on the short-term and the long-term impact of the pandemic on the social situation in Latin America. And I was quite interested on, on one particular uh, issue that you stress in that paper. It's about the potential of setting effects of social policy. Basically, what you found in the paper is that social policy has had uh, an offsetting effect in countries like Argentina and Brazil, in a much lesser extent in Colombia, but it has almost muted effects in, in the case of Mexico. Can you explain us why social policy has been effective in some countries and completely ineffective and also effective in other countries like the case of Mexico? Yes, indeed. Well, first of all, thank you very much uh, for the invitation, Lucy. A pleasure to be here and to discuss these uh, such important issues for, for the region. First of all, let me say one thing as a caveat, as a, as a professor that I am, that uh, the study that we did is based on simulations. It's not mm -hmm. actual data. So when you don't have, we don't have actual data that allows us to assess the extent of in, the impact of uh, the pandemic and the offsetting policies on inequality and poverty. We have partial information. So what do economists do, as you know, is we use the tools that we have at our hand, uh, like micro simulations and apply to uh, information that we have, microdata, which is household surveys that have information on uh, households' incomes, compositions, education, et cetera, and you project what might be the impact on what has been happening. And in the context of the pandemic, uh, first of all, I think we need to say, before we go into the offsetting effects, is that this, uh, we knew was going to be uh, situation that would create lots of new inequality in the short term. And then we're gonna talk about the long term, I'm sure. But in the short term, because the effect is so differentiated across sectors and also across socioeconomic strata. 
So uh, you had the combination of a rising inequality with at the same time, huge declines in total output, as we know, Latin America has been among the hardest hit regions. So that combination obviously would create lots of new poor because even without changes in distribution, it's enough if you have a decline in average income for poverty to rise. If that is coupled with an unequalizing phenomenon like the one we probably have observed, then poverty was going to rise by a lot. And governments responded very differently across the region in terms of how to mitigate the impact on the poor. And from the four countries that we studied, which are the largest in Latin America, Brazil stands out for being the most, if you want, uh, aggressive in terms of implementing policies to compensate people who lost income during the pandemic, both through expanded social assistance programs and also through direct support to salaries in firms so that the people would not be laid off. Now, you want to know why has it been able to offset so much in the case of Argentina and Brazil, less in Colombia, and almost practically zero in Mexico? Money. <laughs> if you allocate, first thing you need to allocate resources to, to the uh, programs that have to be deployed to compensate people who lose income. Mexico has been very conservative in terms of its counter cyclical policies at the macro levels, it has not implemented, I think in the region and maybe in the world, it's one of the few countries or maybe the only country that has not implemented counter-cyclical policies at the macroeconomic level because it, it did not wanna increase its fiscal deficit in spite of the fact that all the advice came in that form, starting from the IMF itself that has told for the first time to countries spend, spend, spend. Uh, Mexico did not, and it did not either, it didn't do it at the macro level, and it did not do it at the level of safety nets. Mm -hmm. If you read what Mexico did, in essence, it tried to sort of shift the adjustment costs to the private sector, uh, mm -hmm. because it, as other countries, it passed measures uh, forbidding layoffs and also, they, you know, sort of uh, asked firms to provide the support that was needed to the workers rather than implementing policies that would support firms because it didn't do yeah. that either. It just has a relatively small loan program and it did not increase any of its existing social assistance programs. What it did, it uh, provided advance payments on the social pensions, mm -hmm. but in principle, up to this point, these are not transfers, they're advanced payments. I have the impression that eventually the government will say, I will continue paying you, even if I gave you the advance, I'm gonna pay you anyway. So eventually they may turn into transfers. At this point, Mexico did not expand its safety nets at all, which is unusual. Mm -hmm. On the other extreme, like I said, Brazil did a, a very, very, uh, sort of aggressive program of compensation. It didn't start from the executive branch because people are surprised that why is it that Bolsonaro was so worried about the poor. It mm -hmm. actually started in Congress. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a congre Congress that put a lot of pressure for these measures to be implemented. 
-hmm. And it has a program that is called Auxilio Emergencial mm -hmm. that covers more than 50 million people. And what's very interesting is that at the beginning when people were talking about what are we gonna do with the informal sector, right? Uh, especially the informal sector that is not in the registries of the existing programs, like Bolsa Familia in Brazil or the AUH in Argentina or Familias en Acción in Colombia. So what are you gonna do for the families that are neither a households that have workers that are neither in the formal sector that have access to unemployment benefits or the informal sector, but have access to the uh, cash transfer programs that already existed before the pandemic. Well, I think the pandemic showed that you are able to deploy large scale programs reaching to those groups of people that were neither formal nor registered in the previous mm -hmm. uh, social assistance programs quite fast. Now we have mm -hmm. to learn how to make it something more, be, maybe more permanent in the sense that anytime you have a shock, you're able to actually reach out to people who mm -hmm. get affected and see mm -hmm. uh, what other countries can learn from the countries that were able to do this successfully, like Brazil and Argentina also, in the, you know, both, both have mistakes, both made mistakes mm -hmm. or gaps, or, but it's huge the amount of people that they were able to reach within a relatively short period of time. Let me let me stop you there and, and ask you about the the relationship between the social policies that you described so so clearly uh, and the health policies, particularly the lockdowns, because the, the countries that you analyze, even though with the limitations you were talking about using micro simulations, doing ex ante analysis, have completely different approaches to to quarantines, uh, particularly the case of Argentina. According to the, the data we have available, one of the longest and maybe one of the most strict lockdowns in Latin America, and in the other extreme, Brazil. How it has been the interplay between these strict lockdowns, at least on, on legal and formal terms, uh, and the social policies that you were describing before? Because I would imagine that even though, I mean, there is some kind of upsetting effect uh, of these social policies, when you have such a massive supply shock induced by this lockdown, by these quarantine policies, the final outcome can be quite complex to, to, to envisage or to analyze. Yes, and you know, I have to be, I'm always very honest with uh, the type of work one does. We, don't, we didn't calibrate differences carefully to the extent to sort of say, well, is uh, what is happening here the result of the lockdown or, because people stop buying. I have to say the following. What uh, research in the US shows is that a lot of the declines in output were not a result of policies that ask people to stay at home. They were self-controlled reductions in demand from those who didn't wanna be exposed. So mm -hmm. even if you didn't have lockdown policies in uh, this, to the same degree, not only Brazil was liberal, Mexico has been liberal too. And remember also the executives were liberal, but not necessarily at the subnational level. There's, there mm -hmm. was more strictness there. But even mm -hmm. if you have different policies de jure, 
de facto, but this is something that we will need to study exposed with data right now, is speculation that uh, I'm, I'm saying, mm -hmm. based primarily on what we've seen in the US, I think that the shock would have been pretty much similar because people will control themselves in terms of not being exposed. To, you know, there's certain sectors that collapse, like mm -hmm. restaurants, gyms, uh, hairdressers, massage parlors, and any of the interactions that uh, expose people to contagion, mm -hmm. those collapse in countries, even if the lockdown policies were laxer. So I think that uh, the interaction, maybe we'll see in the future that some of the lockdown policies were redundant, uh, and uh, maybe you know it would have been better to let people decide. I'm not sure, or maybe the opposite, because mm -hmm. you have a trade-off. In some cases, the imp impact on on health might have been harder uh, if you didn't have the lockdown. But we don't have enough data for now to say with certainty. So I am just giving you some conjectures. Okay, let, let me move you uh, to, to a second issue, which is also covered in, in your paper, which is related to the long-term impacts. And particularly one thing that it struck me as something extremely interesting you, you speculate and you analyze there is the impacts of school close-downs or closures on human capital accumulation and particularly on, on the long-term income of children. So if you can comment on that, because one thing that we, uh, we've seen that is a quite important difference between Latin America and, for instance, Europe, that now Europe seems to be going through a second wave in, in the virus, but they have maintained the schools open. And in Latin America, there has been a quite strong resistance for many governments of reopening schools and, in general, the educational system. Yes, okay. So yeah, thank you for that question. It's very important. Like I said, you know, to sum up, the short-term effects were very large, but some countries have been able to cushion them. And the cushioning depended on the uh, amount of resources and the effectiveness with which you were able to distribute them to those who were losing income as a result of the pandemic. Yeah. But uh, there's one, uh, impact in particular that people have been paying less attention to, which is they have focused on school closures, but less so on what does it mean for long-term social mobility and equality of opportunity. And what uh, we did in the paper is to sort of build counterfactuals with data that you have uh, that exists that has educational levels that are also in, in, in for people for which you have also the educational levels of their parents. And we were able to uh, sort of simulate, if you want, the impact of not being able to complete the year because of school closures on the ability to complete high school uh, by, by cohort. And by cohort and very importantly, by family background. Mm -hmm. What we did is to see to what extent the fact that you have a very differentiated ability of households to replace schooling by homeschooling can lead lasting effects in educational gaps. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that for children who are born to parents that have 
less than high school, the ability to complete high school themselves has been lowered. And in some cases it has been lowered so much that you're back in what used to be the case for cohorts born in the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. So the shock to education for children of disadvantaged households can be huge. And this shock can have lasting effects in terms of social mobility, inequality of opportunity, and also inequality of outcomes. Because mm -hmm. what it means is that you're gonna have less people with skills coming to the labor force, or again, wages of the skilled may be rising faster than wages of the low skilled, and that generates earnings inequality, which was something that happened in the region in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And so we're we're in a situation in which if this is not taken care of, we are going to face consequences that are going to be quite uh, hurtful for, for a mm -hmm. region that had been made, making progress. Now, is the solution not closing schools? Uh, I don't know. I'm not an expert mm -hmm. on that. What I do mm -hmm. know is that if you can't keep schools open, then you have to find a way to replace the conditions for the group of people, of children who are in disadvantaged families so that they do not fall behind to the extent that we are seeing now. So you will need to be imaginative in terms of having alternatives that can continue if you want schooling for children who do not have maybe access to internet, who do not have parents who can mentor and coach them, you must mm -hmm. have alternatives that will help them if you continue during the period in which the schools are closed. But mm -hmm. even if the schools reopen, <clears throat> you're gonna have to invest a lot in catching up. So very importantly, governments in the next few years, as they face, which they will, they need to rein in fiscal deficits because mm -hmm. after this expansion, you know, the, the, the things will have to be put back into balanced uh, equilibrium in terms of the budget. As they sure. face that, they should really protect education spending and maybe they should even think about how they will be able to increase education spending mm -hmm. for targeted programs. Nora, let me stop you there. We are running out of time. We're coming to the end of the interview. I would like to ask you more a question about the, the way forward. I mean, it seems that the pandemic, the end of the pandemic seems to be on site with uh, these uh, discoveries of quite effective vaccines. And most likely sometime maybe next year, sometime of next year, the pandemic is going to abate, hopefully here on, in Latin America as well. Uh, what, what do you think is going to be the role of social policy of uh, getting the region on track, particularly given this dire scenario you are painting, both on, through, both on, on the short term, but also on the long term impacts of the pandemic? Well, I think that there's three items that we need to think about. Uh, we, we see that we are facing recurrent systemic shocks in the region and that you need to have ways to compensate people that may not be in the system regularly because they, they get uh, losses in income that are not necessarily happening traditionally. So they're not gonna be in the 
the not in the formal sector and the not in the in the registries of the social assistance program. So I would urge everybody to look into how can you deploy assistance, social assistance, quickly if another shock occurs. Rather mm -hmm. than thinking of a universal basic income, which is what a lot of people are advocating, I would think about how do you make the right to a basic income possible through systems that deploy fast help when needed. Because otherwise, you're going to be spending money on people who don't need it if you have a universal basic income in general. So that would be one recommendation. The second one is the one that has to do with education, which I already said. Be careful in terms of you know, how you budget for education and be very mindful of introducing programs that allow the catching up of the children that fell behind. If you mm -hmm. want to really have more equitable societies in the future. And thirdly, one thing that's gonna happen also is as you try to uh, reinstate fiscal balance, you're gonna have to raise taxes. Be careful how you raise them because if you start raising them through certain type of taxes, you may end up hurting the poor or the middle sectors that became poor as a result of the uh, current shock. So how you design the tax system in the future has to have, if you want, the social equity objectives in mind as well. Excellent. Thank you very much. It was an excellent response to a very complex question. And also, uh, as you mentioned, I think the region is facing a very complicated way out of this crisis with long-term impact. So I think, as you said, uh, there are responses that have to be well thought, well designed, both on the fiscal policy, but also on the social policy front. So thank you very much, Nora, for this extremely interesting interview. It has been a pleasure talking to you. It has been full of insights about the things the impacts about the, the this pandemic in Latin America, the things that we know, the things that we don't know, but for sure you gave us a lot of food for thought in terms of the weight out of this uh, pandemic for Latin America. So thank you very much in, in the name of all of us and particularly me. And again, thanks. Thank you, Lucio. It's been a pleasure. This episode of To The Point was produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. For sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at lap at wilsoncenter.org. Thanks for listening.